Hi, everyone. I'm back with Mind Rolling, and uh, I'm with uh, Tenzin Priyadarshi, Venerable Tenzin. It's so great to meet you, and it's like I met or I got to know about you through our mutual friend, Robert Thurman, and uh, Bob was kind enough to introduce me. So thank you, Bob, for this. Yes, thank you. He's he's uh, a wonderful uh, spiritual friend and a mentor. So. Yeah, that's right. Didn't you go to? Um, well, you'll. I, I want you to tell your your story a little bit. Um, but obviously, you ended up meeting Bob, and I think I saw some. You met him a long time ago, like when you were a student, right? That in is correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had just arrived in the U.S. some. 25 years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. wow. uh, amazing story. So uh, Tenzin's written a book, Running Towards Mystery, Toward Mystery, The Adventures of an Unconventional Life, to say the least, uh, and um, highly, highly enjoyable uh, read and full of informative um, I mean, part of what I do here with Mind Rolling is, you know, try and make some of, some of the shall we say, more esoteric teachings, you know, uh, translated in a, as practical a way as I can through my own lens. And, uh, boy, you've, you've got some wonderful, wonderful practical things here for people to, to grab onto to make uh, a little bit more balance in, in our lives. So thank you. appreciate that. And um, so whenever I meet somebody new, I, I usually say to them, well, what, what was it that gave you, you know, as you were a child and you were growing up and you grew up with all of the causes and conditions and uh, the habitual patterns that got created, the I identity, uh, what is it what, uh, that led you to understand there was, there is rather, another place, a reality that is not dependent on senses and, and that I that we're normally, our story, basically. And, but in your case... Uh, very unusual that you grew up knowing from the get-go where uh, your dharma was pointed. And, uh, and as a 10-year-old, you actually took off. And, and you come from a, a Brahmin Hindu family, am I correct? That is correct. Yeah. So, tell, okay, enough of me. Tell, tell us a little bit of how did, how did those causes and conditions, what were they like in, in your growing up? And, and then, you know, the path that uh, was so obvious to you in so many different ways. Uh, well, uh, firstly, thank you for this, uh, this opportunity. And as I, uh, as I mentioned in the book, uh, I think if I had to boil down how it all got uh, triggered... Uh, of course, for the Buddhist, uh, the short answers are karma and sanskara. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. uh, those two things uh, would uh, would explain the trigger mechanism. Um, and uh, and I was fortunate enough to uh, uh, to be part of a very loving uh, family. Uh, of course, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, somewhat social Hindus and, and Brahmins. Um, and quite open-minded, uh, you know, and uh, they they encourage parts of my exploration, um, but I think they freaked out when uh, when I uh, expressed my uh, strong interest in uh, joining a Buddhist monastic order, uh, being the only son in the family, uh, and uh, uh, of a particular social class. That raised uh, certain challenges for even my most loving parents. Yeah, uh, and may I remind everybody that highly unusual, I mean, not so unusual where uh, maybe a child or a young man decides to go off onto uh, a path of monkhood, monkhood, spiritual path, but not a Hindu family man joining a Buddhist uh, you know, monastery or in any way would that be considered... Uh, as they say in, in Yiddish, kosher was not. Kosher, that is, that is correct. <laughs> yeah. For the longest time, I was the Sangha of one, you know, <laughs> coming, <laughs> coming from that background, yes. <laughs> yeah. So just delve a little further. I mean, the story, it's just amazing. I mean, you know, everybody, uh, Tenzin's story just points to, the, the, we, you, you, we say these words, karma and, 
some scars, you know, easily, and uh, they're not so easy to fully uh, understand in one's mind, intellectually rather. Uh, but look, that dream, talk, tell us that story. I mean, it's just fantastic, the dream you had that led you out the door. So, um, you know, uh, over the course of my life, I have tried to tell the story in, uh, uh, in many ways. And of course, there was always the desire to have a, have a logical story or have a rational story. But uh, despite several attempts, I, I now just tell the story as it happened. Um, <laughs> as, uh, as I believe that uh, there's something more than just rational or irrational. Uh, that there is a there's a domain of non-rational um, that mm. that we need to explore uh, more and more. And uh, I thought the only reason I paid attention to it was because it was a recurring dream and uh, a set of recurring dreams that started uh, uh, perhaps when I was uh, six years old and kept recurring. And and uh, you know I did not make much sense of it. And when I spoke to my parents. For others, they they attributed it to a child's imagination. Uh, but by the time I turned ten, the dream became very strong, um, and in particular, the the sights, uh, the faces of uh, what I later came to know were some Buddhist monks, prominent teachers, and uh, a location uh, which I later ran away to uh, that was the Vulture Peak, where the historical Buddha had given. Um, uh, many of the important teachings. Uh, so by the time I turned 10, um, the dreams had become much more intense and I just could not ignore it. And, uh, and uh, one fine morning, early in the morning, uh, I decided to run away from my boarding school. <laughs> At 10? At 10. <laughs> and... And uh, I, I boarded the train, and uh, you know uh, that, that's a whole other thing. You know, a ten-year-old in India, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the the stations are just mass hysteria most of the time, unless you're in a really small place. But that that's a lot of bravery right there. Not to mention you need money. You know, <laughs> that is that is true. That is true. And and as I as I outline in the thing that there were several sort of conditioned that had sort of just uh, you know. As, as we say, the stars had aligned, uh, you know, uh, the gates were open, the security guard wasn't there, uh, four in the morning or 3.30 in the morning, a rickshaw is waiting, no questions asked, I get on the rickshaw, <laughs> you know, I go to meet this uh, friend of my father's, uh, also himself a very religious individual, and uh, I asked him for 100 rupees, and he gave it to me again, no questions asked, and I, I headed to the station from there. So it was kind of, you know, one thing after the other that was just unfolding. And I wasn't in mood for uh, explaining myself because I didn't know what was going on to, to explain to anyone. And, uh, and uh, I just felt like uh, a force or something was just guiding me along this journey, I had no particular destination in mind. I had no, again, no sort of logical thinking about where I might end up, where I would be going. And, uh, and the journey just unfolded. But you, you did end up in, uh, the dream led you to, to the vision. I mean, the vision in the dream led you to the reality. Isn't that true? It did, it did. I, I ended up uh, arriving in uh, Rajgir. Uh, in Bihar, um, it uh, almost took a day and a half to two day of journey, and uh, and uh, and the hill that I kept seeing turned out to be Gridakuta or Vulture Peak, where, as I mentioned earlier, the historical Buddha had given many important teachings, including the Heart Sutra and the Lotus Sutra, and uh, and uh, it was just like a jungle, uh, you know. And and I arrived there; there was nobody there. Um, and uh, and uh, as I mentioned, I, I felt right at home. I felt like I had been there. This wasn't the first time. And, uh, and uh, there was this just uh, deep sense of familiarity with the place. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah. <laughs> and then ensued this... Uh real trials and tribulations related to your family and wanting to, to do what you f 
felt so called to do. And uh, you had some non-fun time, shall we say, with the family in, in terms of that. <laughs> true, true. Um, you know, I, I was, uh, of course, uh, uh, since I had just left a note in my desk um, to my parents, which was rather brief, I, I simply wrote that I'm going on a spiritual quest and there's no point trying to come after me. And uh, so, of course, I was treated like a runaway boy and... Mm. Uh, you know, mm. it's like the missing boy's photo on a milk carton here. Yeah, I was, uh, right. my photos were all over the news. <clears throat> and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, my parents had a very vast network. And so they, they succeeded in uh, locating me after two weeks uh, when somebody just uh, uh, saw me at the temple, uh, at a Buddhist temple in Rajgir and, and uh, called a number on the newspaper and it reached my uncle. Mm. And uh, and then uh, you know, despite of my best efforts just to stay there, of course I was ten, so I only had I had a strong will. It wasn't just a strong legal will. So <laughs> I, <laughs> no I ended up with my back with my family, and mm. uh, and uh, I jokingly tell them that my tell people that my first teaching, public teaching, actually had that, happened at that age, and it was in defense of. Uh, Buddhist monasticism. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, great. So yeah, everybody. The the reality, as Dylan said, blows the mind. I mean, really, when something is supposed to happen in your karmic uh, evolvement, in in, in in that in the incarnation that that we took, each each one of us, you, it's you cannot stop it. You know, there's true, no stopping true. it, and yeah. it just it just really substantiates the reality of of uh, identifying with your uh, your role, your dharma, basically. Eh? No, very very correct, very correct. I I think you know, um, even in this world filled with uncertainties, there was a certain kind of certitude. Um, about that episode in my life and the choice that I had made um, that I think, uh, you know, again, mysteriously gave me strength to, uh, to face my family after I ran away. Um, as, I, as I mentioned in, uh, in this episode where immediately after when I was brought back, there were almost uh, 75 members of my yeah. intervention. Uh, immediate, big <laughs> Exactly. Immediate family just sitting there and waiting for me. <laughs> 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 little guy oh my god yep. Yep. really wow oh it's an amazing story um and and of course through all of these day-to-day uh, -day events and and i mean you went through a lot for many years really and uh different schools and so on and the, i i believe they served you quite well in terms of uh, some of the understandings that uh, that you have now uh, related to the yes. text may say something and we can read them and get our teachers to uh, explicate them, but the experience is a whole other level of, of real understanding. Very true, very true. I, I think, uh, you know, uh, it was several forms of learning uh, that uh, that took place. I mean, of course, one is uh, my parents' emphasis on secular learning and secular education. So I ended up with, uh, and you know, uh, the best schools in those days were run by Christian brothers, yeah. uh, the Irish yeah. Christian brothers. So I, I uh, ended up continuing my studies with them, but uh, uh, at the same time managed to uh, stay in a monastery, stay in a temple, explore, uh, you know, the monastic life. And, uh, and it was, uh, you know, it wasn't fun during that time, you know, because uh, I was almost juggling two curriculums at the same time. Uh, you know, waking up at four in the morning, doing the monastic stuff, and then going into regular school. Uh, but, uh, but it taught me well, I mean, despite of the, the hardships, uh, you know, it, it was almost like on a daily basis traversing uh, multiple lives, multiple lifestyles, um, mm. and uh, and uh, and and the other fun part was uh, was that my teachers were rather encouraging, and so 
so you know i i maintain the a mind of an itinerant uh, so to be able to hang out with uh, uh, you know sadhus uh, passerby tantrics uh, just sit down and and uh, learn and have a conversation and engage in practice and and then that was uh, that was just uh, delightful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they call it not knowing mind. Exactly. Like that, exactly. Right? But but I do you know in the book I mean this is discussed. Uh, you know, intellectual understanding will never provide the complete uh, picture in at any level. Um, we need to test in ways that are not just theoretical but grounded in experience. And and you said there was a reason I headed for the train station first and the library later. <laughs> uh, that's a good line, man. You can learn all there is to know about physics and home mechanics that go into riding a bicycle, but fill fill the blackboard with formulas and equations and fill it. But you until you get in the seat, until you fall off a few times and get back on, whatever you can say about riding a bike will fall short of even a child's experience. That, that's a great analogy for our, our reality, is it not? I mean, it is, it is. I mean, you know, you can have all kinds of uh, theoretical framing and storytelling and narratives about spiritual experiences and life. Um, but, uh, uh, but I think the, the first-hand learning, the first-hand experiences, uh, you know, whether we are able to make sense of it at that moment in time, um, is uh, is is a different issue altogether, and and I think that's one of the challenges that I mention uh, in the book. That uh, the one of the biggest challenge with our spiritual learning is that uh, that uh, you know this ego, this ego prompts us to learn on our own terms, mm. and the biggest realization in spiritual life is that lessons and teachers do not come on our own terms. They come when we need them the most. And uh, and uh, and uh, that in itself is a beautiful, shattering experience of of the ego, the discursive mind, the expectations. What mm. uh, Trungpa Rinpoche said: "Enlightenment is the ego's of final disappointment, or something." <laughs> I see. <laughs> uh, God, that's so great. Well, and also. Uh, Talking about um, so the faith. Faith is, I think, an important thing to talk about. Um, you know, I come from uh, the Bhakti Yoga tradition. With I think you know who Ramdas is, and Neem Karoli Baba is, is our guru. Krishnadas, I believe you've met Krishnadas as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, a couple yeah. of times. Yes. Yeah. So we come from that tradition. And, but interestingly enough, and I've said this many times, somehow we were, uh, not all of us, but a large portion, I mean, there's only a few hundred Westerners that ever met Neem Karoli Baba back in that mm-hmm. day, in the early 70s. And a large part of us ended up taking Buddhist teachings, okay? It was, was unusual. And he, <laughs> Uh, like we would go do, you know, the Vipassana courses in Bodh Gaya that were happening. Uh, and I think you know Sharon Salzberg and some of the other t- yeah. teachers that brought her, or Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein. Right. They were all our friends. And um, so we gravitated over to doing these courses. I didn't even know. I mean, I think the, the initial, I mean, Sharon found it, however way she found it, and Joseph, but like Ramdas was told by, I think Bhagavan Das, hey, there's a great Buddhist meditation course, and he couldn't, you know, he said, okay, but well, what the hell? It was that kind of thing. <laughs> but then all of us were doing it, and and Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba used to say, you know, in English, you going to the course, you going to the course, isn't that great? You know, and it was like, okay, we thought he was happy to get rid of us, you know, all these little hippies that he had around him all the time. <laughs> and then we'd go and come back and he'd say, oh, show me. So you know how to meditate now. Okay, show me. And we'd all like sit straight as an arrow, you know, with our eyes closed. And then we'd hear this high peeled laughter. Look, they know how to meditate. That was the extent of our, you know, uh, we became steeped so far into this particular meditative practice to this day, many of us, including myself. And then, it's, and then it was 
beyond that, it was meeting various Tibetan um, teachers, you know, great teachers, 16th Karmapa and, and Kalu Rinpoche and Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, you know, amazing, amazing masters. And many of us to this day are, are quite still involved in, you know, taking teachings from one or another or just hanging out. And so all of this long thing is to say that although our tradition is steeped in, in, Buddha, in, in bhakti uh, concept of devotion and faith, you know, and guru's grace, guru kripa, which you know so well coming from where you come from, which you understand, well, I don't, you understand it completely, absolutely completely. And somehow we were driven also by karma and basically the guru setting this up for us to really bring together discriminating wisdom, which Buddhism so much represents, with faith, devotion, et cetera, et cetera. And that to me, that com combination is, is very, very powerful. And, and you do mention in, in the book that faith that doesn't stand in opposition to inquiry and it's far more effective when it's not blind. Um, so, yeah, talk about that. I, I think, uh, uh, well, thank you for sharing. I'm always, uh, uh, I'm always sort of uh, delighted to, to hear stories of Neem Karoli Baba. Hmm. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> it's like having, uh, you know, many spiritual friends hmm. whom I only used to meet every six years or 12 years at Kumbh Mela. You know? <laughs> we never exchange addresses. We didn't know each other's numbers. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it was like, uh, it was like a different uh, plane of the universe where conversations continued, mm. um, you know, in a, in a different uh, time and space matrix. Yeah. Um, faith, I, I think, is a widely... Uh, misunderstood thing. Uh, it's widely misunderstood because in the West, we tend to simply juxtapose it against reason. And uh, mm. uh, as as you are, you know, very well aware in the Indic tradition, in Indian tradition, the notion of bhakti uh, includes reason. Uh, it includes this sense of refinement of reason. It includes uh, a sense of trust, a sense of love. And in um, the you know, one particular chapter that uh, that I mentioned, uh, is there so much joy in your religion? And uh, and that's uh, that's sort of this this whole idea that uh, that uh, you know, coming from you know both Buddhist tradition and and you know being born into a family where my father came from a Vaishnava family and my mother came from a Shakta mm. uh, tantric family. Um, you know, the, the idea that, you know, there's, there are so many avenues in samsara to be miserable, to suffer. <laughs> that our Endless. practice of religion should not be one of those places. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, uh, so, so the idea that, that if, we, if we simply come into spiritual practice and we continue to be miserable and we romanticize misery, you know, uh, it goes against this whole idea of spiritual joy. It goes against this whole idea of bhakti in, in, in some regard. Yeah. Uh, because bhakti, I, 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 I believe, is the first sort of stepping stone to non-duality. It's the first stepping stone to recognizing that this I is not really that useful, <laughs> that important. <laughs> Yeah. Bhakti, bhakti is, is what puts me in contrast with the universe. You know, and it's important to, to recognize that contrast. The more we are cognizant of that contrast, the less we give in to self-cherishment and self-importance. And so bhakti is a beautiful tool to egolessness and to non-duality. What talk about the contrast? What 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 are you exactly meaning? Maybe you the can contrast, 
the contrast example. in the sense that, you know, our day-to-day preoccupation with ourself mm. uh, occupies so much of our mental and emotional bandwidth that, uh, that uh, we, our existence sort of gets in our way of life. You know? uh, and we are constantly simply preoccupied with uh, presupposed notions of needs and desires on a day-to-day basis. Uh, to the point that we ignore fellow humans, we ignore our ecosystem, we ignore the environment and so on. And the contrast where you recognize that you're simply a a figment of the larger cosmic interplay of things, the the recognition that that, uh, you're just a fraction of the entire creation of the entire universe that that there is it but you know it doesn't it doesn't suggest that you're not unique it doesn't suggest that you're nobody but it gives you this sort of beautiful experience almost like you know uh, you know it's 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 like you know sitting at the edge of an ocean uh, watching a beautiful sunset you know you sit there and the beauty there is no desire to own the sunset. There is no desire to own the ocean. There is no desire of I, and there is no desire of possessing that experience or copywriting that experience. You, see? you are there in contrast with everything else. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I would say that's our experience of being with this uh, with Neem Karoli Baba uh, is exactly that. Right. Being on the edge of a, a vast ocean-like, you know, an, an internal f- uh, f- uh, experience and just allowing dissolving to happen. And that's what bhakti is. It's the dissolving yes. from the two to the one, as you indicated before, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, I like this other thing you talk about, uh, Tenzin. We in the West are so down with um, keeping track of what we put into stuff and making sure we get that back out. And if we don't get that back, we're not going to be happy here. And you, yeah, cost-benefit analysis. I love, I love that term in spirituality. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's a toughie, big time, you know, all around uh, it is. probably I mean, wrong effort. It, yeah. Yeah, all the all the all the social narratives and norms are sort of designed that way, that we begin to, you know, look into sort of metrics evaluation of even spirituality or spiritual development, to the point that everything in our mind becomes just transactional. You know, everything becomes transactional, uh, and. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, it, it, it takes away from the aesthetics, from the beauty of, of spiritual relationships and spiritual experiences. Yeah. Big time. Yeah, you say here, uh, I just want to quote you for a minute because it, it gets a little bit uh, broader. If we frame our terms in the language of psychology and read the student's submission to the teacher's demands as a protocol for breaking down the ego, it seems to make sense, Right. This is what self-help is all about. Uh, But the translation is not entirely accurate. Western students who try to recreate a student-teacher relationship in the image of Eastern tradition too often misinterpret giving up control as giving up responsibility as permission to regress. Yeah. Talk about Exactly. Explain that out a little bit. Experientially, it's, uh, I'm sure, very close to uh, many, many people who first step onto the path. I think uh, you know the the challenge is that that most of us do not know what a loving relationship is truly. We know mm. dependency, we know codependency, we know expectations, we know transactions. To the point that even what is in our mind the most loving relationship, or what we think is we are entering into a most loving relationship, has all these built-in expectations and transactional mindset around it. But 
you know the 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 relationship between a teacher and a student that i that i try to sort of reframe hopefully uh with some degree of clarity uh, especially for the for the western mind is that you know it's 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 not really an relationship of submission or 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 uh, an authoritarian relationship it's a relationship that is driven by this deep sense of mutual freedom of mutual liberation hmm. it's it's driven by this deep sense of well-being of the student it's driven by this deep sense of spiritual growth and in the buddhist tradition i see it's a uh, you know as i as i was partly joking and saying karma and samskara is that you know the beauty if you if you look into the cycle of rebirth you see you know one life you're a student next life you're a teacher next life you're a student again next life you're a teacher again and the cycle of relationship of student teacher just continues to grow until we reach our goal of liberation until we reach our you know uh, desired sort of uh, state uh, to, to be in so so this 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 idea that that you know to enter a relationship where the only thing that we deeply care about is this sense of supporting each other's spiritual growth hmm. you know i mean you know you can imagine you know for example when you when you when you were sitting with neem karoli baba what did he want from you nothing what did he give you everything <laughs> that's the presence of a teacher yeah i guess we have difficulty also uh, in terms of nomenclature around teacher and um um a being that has gone beyond duality right who's not living in in subject object anymore yeah. and then it's not even a question of um the relationship that that you just talked about which is absolutely completely correct with a with a teacher uh in this case it was like somebody i mean when i look back i can just uh, you know the phrasing that i would use it was like a computer that just did the right thing there wasn't anything i'm going to do there was no doing there was no nothing like yeah. that you know and uh, and i uh, i experienced that uh, same thing although my meeting with uh, 16th karmapa his holiness was very was in a, in a black hat ceremony so it was a few hour whatever it was a few hours and and then i did have a you know cuz he did a one on one with everybody and i that was the moment i understood that thing that i experienced with neem karoli baba was in 16th karmapa the same whatever that ineffable thing and it had nothing to do with bodies right yes. that was my first absolute big hit on the head about that and that that was a that was a big thing and so uh i do believe that uh in in these cases these beings they have nothing to do as you said there's nothing they want there's nothing to do with with anybody except they have you know it sounds to me like uh uh what ramdas call it a, a pot he called it a soul pot <laughs> can't use that word in this case but they yeah they seem to have you know however many people that they met and that you know that that encountered their being was yeah. perfectly right in each moment and and that i i'm supposing continues continue it happened before it will continue in the future they are very special uh, yeah. beings no yeah. i i think we need to learn to make a distinction between personality and presence mm. uh if we simply see teacher as a personality and our mind is sort of just Uh, driven around personality identity and things like that then again you know envy arises jealousy arises the sense of my teacher arises my teacher is greater than your teacher that arises mm. you know all this sort of worldly fallacies around these things but but the presence this this you know uh this kind uh 
selfless presence of a teacher that is just nurturing in nature. Uh, it's like it's like uh, you know basking in sunlight. You see, uh, the mm. sun doesn't want anything from you. You know, and 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 I think that's that's the that's the spirit of of relationship that we need to uh, explore more to understand yeah. the presence of of uh, spiritual beings. Yeah, yeah, and it 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 points to that same presence we all have, and uh, yeah. That is the point of it all, is it not? Um, something else here that's interesting uh, is you. you it's a, you, as you say in the, in the book, it's an oxymoron. But can I even begin to describe the joy of spiritual disillusionment? <laughs> <laughs> okay, describe the joy of spiritual disillusionment. Okay. <laughs> It tastes like a good piece of dark chocolate. <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, yeah, but I need you to go further. Actually, in this thing, it's funny. You, you talk about kirtan, meaning praise, and although Krishna danced in the words uh, that we sang that night, his flute reeled as spinning, praise flowed from me without aim or boundary, not stop, stopping at Krishna. Um, so you were talking about joy here. So, uh, but it's, it's too, uh, we got to get through the, uh, oxymoronish thing of joy, you know, equating with spiritual disillusionment. Well, I, I think, you know, um, it was a particular episode and, uh, I, I was around maybe 12 oh. or 13 years old mm. and, uh, and, uh, you know, I had met of my fair share of spiritual gurus and teachers in India and uh, had uh, plenty of exposure to religious institutions and so on. And the, the, you know, the politics of things, the, the, the shallowness that uh, uh, permeates uh, much of religious institutions and, and, uh, uh, people around spiritual teachers and so on. Uh, you know, it was it was a, a full blown experience of kali yoga, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, and so of course, you know, the mind was itself disillusioned at that moment in the sense of, you know, that uh, you know I left the so called worldly life, a worldly existence, hoping that I'll find something uh, of value, of beauty in religious life. And then I realized that, no, no, there are gradations there as well, that even in religious life, uh, you know, not all the deeper sense of meaning and, and freedom comes at the surface level. But it was a particular stage in my life where, where I was experiencing quite a bit of misery, as I, uh, you know, uh, of, of spiritual struggle and, and, and so on. And uh, and this particular episode where uh, where uh, you know I'm sort of again mysteriously called into uh, a two in the morning kirtan that's going on in this mm. house in a residential neighborhood, and uh, and I go in there Delhi, right? And, in Delhi, in mm. in Karolbagh, and and people are dancing, and I just you know go inside and uh, and I start uh, uh, singing and dancing. You know, I was familiar with uh, the language. Hare Krishna, and was, right? Hare, Hare Krishna, Krishna and, yeah. and there were some beautiful bhajans that were getting sung. Mm. And and there was this moment of uh, of ecstasy, you know. And then the Swami walks up right to me, the short guy, as I remember. And, uh, and he looks at my face and he goes, Tomar dharma te to ananda pabajayaki. You know, that, that is there so much joy in your religion? And it was like a thunderbolt, you know. Mm. And uh, and uh, I left that uh, morning. I think the kirtan probably lasted until four thirty a.m. or so. And I went home. And and this uh, this question, you know, is there so much joy in your religion, um, had hit me hard. And so I went home. I showered and I decided to skip school and I decided to go back again to find that swami to to continue the conversation i mean this could this was just the beginning of a of an unfolding uh, uh, saga of what does it mean uh, to to be in spiritual joy and i get there 
and uh, it's completely quiet. And then this caretaker sort of lets me in. I, uh, he says, uh, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, I want to meet the Swami. And he says, no, 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 there's nobody here. And I said, no, can I go upstairs? There's a... and so he takes me upstairs and I knew the <laughs> temple. And I said, you know, I was here last night, <laughs> you know, at two in the morning. He said, not possible. He says, uh, you know, uh, the place is closed. Uh, and I said, no, 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 I need to see that Swami uh, <laughs> who, was doing, who was leading the Kirtan last mm. night. And and I'm in the temple, and uh, you know, on the side on the side of the wall, they had they had photos of of various swamis, and I said, "Oh, that's the guy that I that I spoke to. Can you please call him?" Uh, you know. And I still remember this guy just turned completely white, like like he had a he had a, he was talking to a ghost or something, and he just looks at me and he says, "Are you sure that's that's prob that's not possible?" And I said, "No, no, no." Just call the Swami. I was with him last night, you know, and, and I have hmm. so many questions for him. And he said, well, he passed away several years ago. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, so all this night I was, you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, uh, I was dancing with uh, the, the, the embodiment, the, the, the ghostly embodiment of disciples of Krishna and Shiva. <laughs> Fantastic. It's all real. It's all real. It's unbelievable. Wow. But, uh, you know, talking about joy, um, perfecting the practice of joyful effort is one of the perfections that that defines the path of a bodhisattva and how else to meet infinite suffering face-to-face and not be defeated. Um, And, you know, I read that passage and think of what we're in, what we're going through here in this country a very, very difficult times with the pandemic and, of course, with uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, the protests and uh, uh, getting a sense of that reality, I think, is uh, so, so important. But just talk, just maybe just um, contextualize a little bit joyful effort. Now, right effort is one of the Eightfold Path. That's correct. Yeah, so talk about joyful effort. Because, you know, people like effort, oh, my God, i got to do this thing. I, mean, I got to meditate. I don't know. Do you? I, I, think, I think the biggest challenge uh, with, uh, you know, human mindset is that our own habits are our, our biggest obstacles. Our own habits are our biggest mm-hmm. obstacles, both in terms of the perception, how we see the world, how we see each other. And also in terms of our own experience, the the self-cherishment, the I, the sense that somehow, uh, you know, I'm the chosen one or I'm more special than somebody else, you know. Uh, these are the trappings of, of conventional life, sometimes also trappings of spiritual life. But, uh, but I think, uh, I truly believe that, that the universe has, in some ways, granted us, you know, this gift it's it's a very painful series of things but firstly you know with with the pandemic um, uh, that despite of our faith in science despite of our uh, faith in speedy resolutions and speedy remedies the fact that there was so much suffering the fact that it led us to have some lone time and we struggled with it we struggled with the idea of silence we struggled with the idea of solitude that, that somehow we have forgotten. You know, we have no education to be alone. We have no education to, uh, to use the time of solitude and introspection mm. and so on to, to mm. sort of go deeper within ourselves. We are constantly yeah. looking for distractions and, and things yeah. of that nature. Get friendly with ourselves is not on our schedule. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and so, you know, and then that was happening. And then, of course, the whole, uh, you know, sort of, these violent outbursts um, of uh, race relations and race tensions, which are again something that has been going on in our society for you know more than 100, 200 years, that we have not come face to face with, that we have not uh, had any any form of reckoning with, mm. and so this idea that that people these days are speaking of you know a new normal, and and then there is this desire on the part of you know, wider members of society to just go back to the old normal, to just go back to our old ways of life and business as usual and so on. 
And, and it would be a shame if we simply went back to the old normal. It would be a shame to, to you know, ignore this beautiful portal of change, to ignore this beautiful opportunity to, to transform human and societal behavior. Uh, and that's where the notion of joyful effort comes in, that if we want to create a new normal, it's not just about effort. It's about taking joy in the effort. It's about taking joy in the fact that if I have to make an effort to get rid of my biases, to get rid of my biases against another human being, to get rid of my biases against how I consume environment rather than having a healthy relationship with it, mm. let that effort be joyful effort that, that, that we are going to learn something and that it is going to bring about a net positive. In, in the process of effort. Um, and, and, and it's a kind of effort that we should seek out. See? And in the seeking out, I, I, I do believe that, you know, the more we discover ourselves, uh, the more we'll be able to discover the beauty of interdependence, the beauty of interconnectedness of, of, of all things. Uh, otherwise, we will simply nurture and be, you know, sort of subjugated to this consumer mindset, to this consumer behavior. Yeah. I think the joyful part, I mean, is the interconnected part that, wow, we're happy to be able to connect with everyone that we can possibly connect to and offer our our love, our yes. compassion, our kindness, as His Holiness says. Right. So, yeah, um, I, I think it's really, really important. I'm glad you know you brought it forward in in, in the book. So it's really um, also um, you. I guess you um, Nagarjuna is somebody that seems important to you as a one of our past teachers, right? Yes, from the Nalanda, you know, second century, and and all that, and um, I, I really love this part uh, that you talk about. It's all very well to wave a hand and dismiss this world as illusion. What what does that mean? If if what is real, if not what lies at hand, and yeah, how, talk about how he did it, because uh, that's a big big issue here as well. You know, and basically it forms the whole basis for spiritual bypass, right? You know, it's all Maya. So yes, what? Yes, you know? yes. <laughs> you know, the, the, the thing is that, that uh, it is all Maya, but the question is, will, will our role be in joyful Maya or miserable Maya? <laughs> uh, you know, that... that whether we are going to use this maya for the purpose of freedom or whether we are going to use this maya to perpetuate deception and delusion and, and so on. Um, but Nagarjuna is, is of course, uh, you know, uh, uh, a wonderful, wonderful teacher who, uh, who reminds us that, that even when we get to recognize that everything is an illusion, that it does not permit us to overcome the immediate responsibility that is dictated by the domain of that reality. So the idea that, yes, everything is maya, but within this framework, as long as I am in this life, that there ought to be some form of ethical framing, some form of compassionate framing in terms of, how I live this life, that, that the recognition of Maya is not a dismissal of reality. In fact, when we dismiss the world and we dismiss the people herein simply as illusion, I think that is an incomplete realization of, of what Maya is, of, of what illusion is. And this is one of the biggest debate in, in the Buddhist tradition, which is that you know, if everything is an illusion, what's the point of being compassionate? If human beings are illusion, then what's the point of being compassionate towards that? And 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 this sense that uh, you know, one of the disciples of Nagarjuna used to say that that never forget to 
be respectful towards sentient beings because it is the sentient beings who are the cause of enlightenment. See? Mm. Meaning that that if, if we don't uh, recognize sentient beings, if we don't recognize how our interactions, our day-to-day interactions with these sentient beings occurs, that all of our perfections, the perfection of joy, the perfection of wisdom, the perfection of generosity, all this occurs, all this happens because of the sentient world. And therefore, it is truly without them that that we won't have any experience of what enlightenment is like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, back to uh, just a little bit around, you know, it, the cop-out of it's all illusion and so on. Actions have consequences, <laughs> you mentioned. And I think that's extraordinarily important that we realize, and it goes back to, uh, you know, uh, joyful effort. Part of joyful effort is realizing that consequence, uh, that actions have consequences and that we, we do creates waves, even, the, even a thought form, you know, a, a guy, you know, cutting you off in a car, you don't have to be yelling out the window, you, blah, 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 you know, you, you have it in your mind, you're still waveforms, waveforms. So... Uh, that I just think that that's um, we don't have to pound ourselves on that. No, note, no, no. We, we don't have to pound ourselves, but but it is it is part of this. You know, the the way I I try to suggest it's it's part of this ethical imagination that we as humans need to engage in, which is that if we deeply believed that every action has consequence. Okay. Um, it is not to say that we should live our life in fear of those consequences because it gives us control over what our actions are going to be, hence the consequences. Okay. And, and so this whole sense of joyful effort or compassionate action or action that, that arises from an altruistic mindset and so on, that, that these are all within the grasp, within the means of human psyche. And it would be a very different world today if we all truly believed that there is karma. (laughs) (laughs) Simply said. (laughs) Yeah. Uh. (laughs) Not not just in a distant life. Yeah, right. But just that there is karma. Yeah. There is karma. Oh, my. Um. We're getting close to to the end of our uh, podcast here, our time. But I I can't... To me, you expressed in one part of the book, and and this is directly from Buddha, what is the core of everything. I mean, nothing makes more sense than this to me. And uh, at one point, Ananda, the Buddha's cousin and attendant, offered an exuberant appreciation of this excellent friendship, Kalyan Mitra, basically. Uh, He said, Ananda said, this is half of the holy life, right? Good friendship, good companionship, good camaraderie. And the Buddha corrected him, said, not so, Ananda. Don't say that. Good friendship, good companionship, good camaraderie is actually the whole of holy life, Sangha. Right, yeah, sangha and Hindu satsang. Satsang, you know, it's it's a very, very valuable thing. Um, You know, Mm. we we are social creatures. There is no denying of that. But we should be mindful in terms of who we choose to hang out with, because that, uh, you know, that sort of changes our psyche, our outlook, and there's nothing better. You know, oftentimes we like to simply hang out with people who agree with us or who flatter mm-hmm. us and so on and so forth. Uh, there are all kinds of friendships in this world. Uh, but, uh, but if we truly understood, again, this notion of spiritual friendship, the, the friendship that allows us to, to be in the company, be in the presence, mutually seeking truth and understanding and studying reality, what a beauty that is. <laughs> yeah, what a beauty that is. Yeah, absolutely. 
Gee, we haven't haven't said yeah you the kind of work that you do. Uh, uh, Tenzin, Venerable Tenzin, is president of of the Dalai Lama Center for Ethics and Transformative Values at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. Um, that's a big mouthful just saying it. Never mind what the actual work is, my lord. Well, I I, I would like to say, I would like to say that I think the work is. Uh, as audacious as the title, and and believe me, there were folks around me who were trying to come up with uh, you know better acronyms or better titles mm-hmm. for this thing, but uh, but it but it is it is the work is uh, fueled by the call of the Dalai Lama and individuals like Archbishop Tutu to to make effort in our system of learning. To, uh, in our systems of education, to make society more ethical, um, and uh, and not by just traditional ways of imparting dictums or education in that manner, but but uh, uh, truly to sort of foster conversations around what is truly of value, uh, and and uh, how should we, uh, uh, you know, how should we uh, behave? How should we conduct ourselves? Uh, so that we can take care of each other and take care of the planet uh, for the better uh, in the long term. And that requires uh, transformative values. That requires sort of deeper transformation of individuals in society. Mm. Yeah. Anybody who knows uh, His Holiness or has gone to any teaching or has read any book, this is core for him to... uh, get out there in this world, so it's fantastic you're doing this. Um, how about a parting gift is an anecdote of being with His Holiness? Everyone has. <laughs> Give us one. Uh, Just the delight of this human being. <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's just uh, he's just a uh, you know, he's just a phenomenal, phenomenal presence. And uh, and we are just very fortunate to, again, share this time and space matrix uh, while he's alive, while he's here, mm. and uh, and uh, you know, among among many things, uh, many encounters that we have had, uh, is uh, is his sheer sense of of encouraging inquiry and encouraging curiosity. Mm. Uh, even when you're sort of just enamored by him. <laughs> and I remember one moment when uh, I was uh, uh, studying something with him and, and he was giving the commentary and suddenly he looks at me and he says, what do you think? And, uh, and, I, and I think we were studying Nagarjuna and I, I, I said, uh, well, Nagarjuna said so. You're the Dalai Lama, you're commenting on it. What do I think is of no consequence? What does it really matter what I think? You know? And he looked at me and he shut the text and he says, "No, you know, uh, you know, even Buddha said to investigate his words." And and, and this is where you know, uh, going back again to this idea of making a distinction between personality and presence. See? Mm-hmm. That that the Dalai Lama, uh, his holiness, the Dalai Lama, is that kind, compassionate, encouraging presence. That just wants us to be more curious and wants us to become better just by his mere presence, even if he doesn't utter a word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing. Thank you so much, Tenzin, for being here. Well, it's a delight. Just Thank l- you. Love meeting you. I hope one day we can meet in person. I'm sure it could happen. Nothing is, it's all impermanent. That's the good part of this whole deal. True. Knowing true. that, right? So, uh, and by the way, everybody will have uh, links to the book, links to uh, Tenzin's work online. And, uh, uh, oh, okay, suggest to me one book that we should, uh, we should turn people on to that's been useful for you. Um, I think in terms of uh, somewhat contemporary, I would suggest uh, actually a book by His Holiness, uh, Kindness, Clarity, and Insight. Mm, yeah. uh, I think it's, uh, it's um, the lessons in it are very timely. Mm. Kindness, 
I don't know that book. Although he has a lot of books. That is control. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to get that up there, everybody. And uh, again, thank you. Thank you, Tenzin. And this is Mind Rolling, and uh, we shall return next week on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and check out all of the incredible teachers and thought leaders that we have doing podcasts now. Bye-bye. Ram Nam. Thank you. Ram Ram. Thank you. (laughs)